Um, I don't know what a chat is, but apparently it's not a good thing. <laughs> apparently I want to avoid being a chad. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, man, it's great to see you all again. I really, I've been looking forward to being back. It was really good to be away for a bit. Um, for so, those of you who are new tonight, first of all, welcome to RUF. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I'm the campus, pa- I'm the campus minister with RUF. Um, you may be wondering what you've stumbled into. RUF is a Christian community on campus, um, and we want to explore the cl- claims of Christianity together and see, does the Bible, does Christianity have anything to say about being a college student today um, in the 21st century in New Mexico? But we also want to, like, for those of us who are Christians, grow in our faith. We want to say, how can we become better followers of Jesus? How can we become people who are more loving and caring for those who are around us? How can we explore the really hard parts of life and see if Christianity has anything to do with them? So that's what we're about. We do a lot of fun stuff throughout the semester. We do um, yeah, small groups. I encourage you to get into a small group if you're interested in that. Um, and I, y'all, I really encourage you to go to summer conference. I know we sound like a broken record, but I can't tell you how awesome it is. Like, it's so much fun. Um, like, it's an epic road trip. Actually, two of them, there and back, because you don't want to stay there. But it's an awesome road trip. It's beach. It's, like, interesting seminars. Like, you can pick what seminars you want to go to. I'm curious about the plausibility of Christianity. There's a whole seminary, seminar, seminar on... There's a, well, there are, but... There's a, there's a whole seminar on what we call defeaters, like the plausibility of Christianity. You want, there's seminars on like women's sexuality stuff. There's seminars on guys' issue. There's some, I mean, just all kinds of things you can choose, and then beach, and like, I'm telling you, just go. Just go. Um, just go. Um, so if, if money's an issue, come talk to me. We have people who really love RUF and really love you, even though they don't know you, and they give money to scholarship um, so, if that's an issue, come talk to me. We can make it happen. Um, so, for some of you, um, you, some of you know, my wife had a baby two and a half weeks ago. So, um, the baby's great. Phoebe Virginia. Some of you have met her. Some of you have held her. Some of you haven't. She's an amazing baby. I know I'm biased. But she actually is objectively an amazing baby. <laughs> um, but I've been gone for the past two weeks. Um, so, it's been good. It's good to be back with you. Um, so the last, up to, up to two weeks ago, we had been studying the book of Leviticus, um, which if you know the Bible is an odd book, you, or nah, it's not an odd book, it's a book that you think like, why are, why are they studying that? Not a normal book. Um, but I think from, from my study and from the feedback I've gotten, it's actually been really good. Um, and, I, and so we're going to continue looking at it tonight. And um, the last few weeks we've been, we've been asking questions um, surrounding atonement. And atonement is a big theological word for an okay verdict, for a verdict of, I'm okay. And, and we've been asking questions with, like, how do I deal with my guilt and my shame and my, my sin, honestly? How do I get real love that won't abandon me? How do I get an eternal and unchangeable okay verdict that can support me and sustain me when life does this? And we've, we've looked at a lot of different things, but over and over again, we've seen that that atonement, that verdict, has been in Jesus Christ. In what Jesus has done, that He deals with our sin 
that he deals with our guilt, with our shame, with our pollution. And if you're interested in that, A, you can come talk to me. B, those sermons are online. Um, and so if you are interested, you can listen to those. But tonight, <coughs> we're actually going to pivot just a little bit. We're going to take, we're going to go off in a little different direction. Okay, so if everything that we've talked about in the past is true, okay, how do we actually start to live our lives now? If this is true, that we are accepted, that we are atoned, if we are loved, that we are valued in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, how am I, how are you supposed to live now? Live in light of that fact. And so, that's what we're going to be looking at. And that's the point that the Israelites, who were the original audience that, that would receive this book of Leviticus, that's the question they're asking. And the answer that God gives us, how am I supposed to live? The answer that God gives us is in holiness. In holiness. So tonight we're going to see that God commands His people, then and now, to, to live in holiness, which is expressed in love for neighbor. A command to live in holiness in love for neighbor. And so I'm going to read this text um, and then we'll look at it. So we're actually going to read a couple of verses and then we're going to skip some and we're going to pick back up again. And if you're following along on your phone, you can look at why we're, you can look at that. I'm not skipping them because I, they're hard to explain or anything. I'm just skipping them for the sake of time, just because I want to value your time and I don't want you to be here for an hour. Don't get me wrong, I could talk for an hour. But I don't want you to have to listen to that. So if you're curious about that, you can come talk to me. But that's why, if you're curious, why is he skipping parts? That's why. So um, if you have a bulletin or your phone, look with me at Leviticus 19, and this is God's word. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then skipping down to verse 9. When you reap the the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear upon my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is God's word. Let me pray real quick. Father in heaven, thank you once again uh, for your sustaining love and grace that has got us to another week. Um, Thank you, Lord, that we can gather here tonight And um, for those of us who are old, come back and see old friends. And for those of us who are new, come and meet people. And for all of us that we can sit around your word. Father, we pray now as we look at your word that you would work through it, that you would use 
your servant now um, to proclaim what you would have us to hear. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so a lot of stuff that we just read. There's a lot of text. We're going to only look at pieces of it, but uh, let's just start right at the beginning, all right? So look at the first verses. Look at verses 1 and 2. What does it say here? Well, God lays down a pretty obvious law, right? He says, speak to the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God am holy. He lays down this blanket command right off the get go and says, be holy. Why? Because I, your God, am holy. Now, on a level, I think we kind of understand that. And then we look and see the rest of the chapter. He's kind of describing and fleshing out what that holiness is going to look like, right? And, and the rest of the chapter, what we read, and even the parts that we didn't read, he's describing what that looks like in a series of ethical commands. You shall not do this, you shall do this. And all of those are expounding upon and describing what that holiness that he commands them to be looks like. So he's saying, be holy, and here's how. Lots of, and then gives lots of details. So there's lots of specifics, and we're going to get into those in, in a, just a second. But what I want to do real quick is kind of zoom out and look at these from about 10,000 feet for just a second. And I want to make two real quick points about them. First, I want you to notice that this holiness that he describes is very public. It's a very public holiness. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I think that there's a, there can be a miscommunication or a misunderstanding when we think about holiness today. So think of it this way. If I were to say, so-and-so is a holy man, or so-and-so is a holy woman, what do you think of? You know, you think of a holy person. Well, I think, I think in the first place, we would think of someone who's extremely pious, right? And maybe someone who's a bit of an ascetic, somebody who kind of like has spurned all the niceties of life and maybe just kind of gets by on, on things and, and, you know, meager food, maybe lives, lives in, you know, not quite as nice, you know, like, like a monk, Something like that, when we say someone's a holy person. In fact, I googled holy person, and the definition online is that it's someone who is exceptionally pious and has an attained a level of enlightenment and is in transcendence over the normal life, you know? So we picture, you know? That's what we picture when we think of a holy person, right? At least that's sometimes what I think of, Right? A holy person is someone who seems removed from the normal life so they can pursue the higher calling, you know, of piety and prayer and devotion. Those sorts of things, right? That's what we think of when we think of a holy person. So is that what God is calling his people to when he says, be holy as I am holy? I don't think so. Now, why would I say that? Because look at what he's describing when he describes holiness. They're distinctively public. They're distinctively social. And in fact, they're actually really nitty-gritty details about normal life, especially life 3,500 years ago in an agrarian culture. It's distinctively public. Look, there's economic factors here. Look at verses 9 and verses 13. It's dealing with economics. This is not something that's like high above normal, you know, normal. Like, like this is dealing with money and food, like very normal things. It's also political or legal. Look at verse 15. You shall do no injustice in court. 
but you, you shall not be partial or defer to the great or the poor over and over. And there's other places in Leviticus that shows us, as it describes what holiness is, it shows us that holiness is ecological. It has to do with the environment. It shows us that it's medical, that it relates to social justice issues, that it even, 3,500 years ago, but even still, it's technological. That holiness is, even has to do with technology. Now, obviously, it's not to do with smartphones, but technology in its Bronze Age form. He says there's holiness to be had in that. And I think that's an important point here, that the Bible does not see money or politics or school or recreation or social life or any of the things that you and I do as threats to holiness. It's not saying give those things up so that you can be holy. It's saying no, those things, the real things that you and I do on our day-to-day lives on campus, those are actually conduits. Those are actually means. Those are actually things in which you and I can be holy. Now, what does it mean? It means that in our daily lives, grocery shopping, pumping gas, studying, walking to class, that in these very mundane and normal parts of our lives, that holiness is attainable. And that holiness is not something that you do when you sit down and you open your Bible and you're like, all right, I'm going to do my pious holy time. No, that's a part of it, but it's also living life. The very real parts of cooking and eating, those things are opportunities for holiness. That there's no separation between a spiritual life and your daily life. It's all together, God says, in those things you are called to be holiness. Okay, so that's the first thing I want you to notice, that it's public. Second thing I want you to notice about holiness is that holiness is shown through love. Holiness is shown through love. Look with me at verse 18, the very last verse we read. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And now that verse is actually kind of a summary for the whole chapter. That verse kind of encapsulates and describes everything that's going on in this chapter. And, and remember, remember that this happens over and over again. Remember how Jesus, years later, they would ask him, what's the law? What's the sum of the law? What did Jesus say? Love God, love neighbor. He says the law is summed up. Everything is summed up in the ideas of loving God and loving neighbor. So what that means is that holiness here is essentially connected to and is inseparable from actions, daily, mundane even, actions of love for human beings, for human beings around us. The Christians in the first, the first Christians, the people who's, who first heard about who Jesus was and, and were following Jesus in the, early, in the early church, so this is like from 90 A.D. to 100 and, eh, 200 A.D., they understood that. They understood that holiness was the same thing or was intimately connected with love. And it's extremely well documented that the first Christians were well known for their love for each other and for the Christians. And for non-Christians even. So here they are. Christianity, if you know anything about early church history, was not a popular religion. In fact, it was illegal in a lot of parts of the, of the Roman Empire. And so it was, they would be persecuted. They could be killed. 
but often they were just, they had economic disadvantages, they were oppressed, they were abused, just for being Christians. And yet, how did they respond? How did they respond? With incredible, very practical love, even for the people who would persecute them. For example, Christians, so back then, you know, you would have a place where you would sequester or quarantine the people who were ill and contagious. They understood that. And so they would send all the sick people to one part of the city, or even worse, they'd send them out of the city. And so you basically have a bunch of sick people in one section of town getting each other more sick and dying. And to, you know, it's just like degenerating public health. The Christians said, that's wrong. These are people who need love. So they would go over, even in their own health, into those quarantine sick communities, get themselves sick, and even die. But while they were doing it, they were loving and caring for and burying the dead, feeding them. They understood that they were called to love even the people who persecuted them, even at great personal cost. Another practice back then was if you, didn't, if you had a baby and you didn't want to keep the baby, um, they would just leave it on the side of the road and they would often just die of exposure. And the Christians said, this is terrible. We can't let this happen. And so they would take the babies into their homes. That's a huge economic cost. That's a, you know, it's like all of a sudden, hey, babe, I found a baby. Okay. Like I, if I were to do that, just like come home with a baby to my wife and be like, we've got another one. <laughs> Caroline would be like, you monster. (laughs) But she's like, I mean, that's a huge sacrifice. And they were known for doing this. In fact, there's a a, a well-known description of the early Christians that it says it was this. This was a non-Christian who's describing the Christians. And he says, "They they obeyed the prescribed laws and at the same time surpassed the laws with their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. What's going on there? What was going on with them? They internalized, they understood that holiness was connected to obedience and that obedience was expressed in love for those around them. Love for the Christian community and love even for those outside of the Christian community. They understood the principles of love and holiness and they creatively applied those to their community. They looked at this, they looked at these texts and said, here's a baby lying by the side of the road. There's no scripture that says, thou shalt pick up babies. But they said, we need to... Why is that funny? <laughs> but they still said, we're going to care for this baby. They, they applied principles of love to their community. Now, what would it look like? What does it look like if we as Christians were to do that today? What would it look like if RUF at New Mexico State was this kind of a community? What kind of a community would it be? Dream with me a little bit. If we were a community that was marked by this kind of holiness that was expressed in love and genuine concern and care for those in our community. Well, we can get a little bit closer than that. We don't just have to dream. He actually gives us some case studies here. And I want to look at some of these case studies. Look with me at verse 9. This is one that's often confusing. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So what is this command? What is actually happening here? Well, this is a command 
to leave the edges of a field, of an economic field, and remember, pretty much it's an agrarian society, so pretty much everyone was farmers. If you weren't a farmer, then you were poor. Um, so it's basically leave the edges of your farmer of your farm unpicked, unharvested, and then the poor would come and glean the edges, and that's what they would live off of, right? And so, well, what's the principle underneath that? Well, the principle is generosity with my resources towards those who are needy, especially in an economic sense. So in economical terms, if some of you are economical majors, basically they're giving up marginal profits. They're giving up marginal profit, and they're they're sacrificing maximal profits so that the poor can be blessed. That's a big no-no in economic theory because profits are always made on the margin, right? And here's God saying, give up basically your profit for the poor. That's a huge sacrifice. You're taking a big loss because you don't know what next year is going to bring. You may not have food, and yet God's saying, give it up. Sacrifice it for the poor. Now, this has some mind-blowing this is a mind-blowing proposition for our capitalistic society, which is all about maximizing profits at all costs. Um, so this law alone, I think, has some huge implications for our capitalistic society. Um, I'll leave that for another day. There's a lot there that we need to talk about uh, as Christians and we need to work on. Um, but how does this apply to a campus? How does this idea apply to a campus? Obviously, we're not agrarian we don't operate this, but, so, but what's the principle behind it? Remember, always ask, what is the principle behind this? Well, the principle is, if I am privileged, if I am wealthy, I'm called to sacrifice to those who are not wealthy. Now, some of you might think, Jonathan, I'm in college. I'm not wealthy. I don't have money. I can't give my margins. True. That's you know, it's right. You're in college. You, well, hey, you won't always be poor. Maybe. I mean, you might be a pastor. But... <laughs> But here's the point. Even in that, you still have things that you still have resources. There's a famous, there's a pastor in New York City named Tim Keller. He did a whole series on generosity. And he said this. He says, not all wealth is economic. Not all of our wealth is economic. And he said, you may have wealth in, well, not wealth, but you may have time. You may have time. You may have emotional resources. You may have friendship wealth. Here's the deal. If you're in college in 2019 in America, you have more wealth in one form or another than 99% of the people in human history of some kind. You have resources. You have those resources. So what does it mean? It means sacrificing some of your wealth, time, money, emotional space, social space, to care for those who don't have those things. To care for the people in your life, the poor and the soldier. And what's that? That's the lonely person on campus. That's the person who is probably depressed because they're like, no one talks to me. Y'all, I have talked with students on this campus who the only conversation they have is the conversation that I had with them six weeks ago. You know people who are like that, who are desperately lonely. God is calling us to be holy, which is expressed in love, which means giving up the margins of our resources, which you have. I don't know what they are. And if you're interested in exploring it, meet with me and we can explore. 
We'll explore where are your margins? How can you care for people? Sacrificing your wealth for someone else. To you, this law would say, give up the marginal wealth. Maybe it's time with friends. Maybe it's time studying. Maybe it's time exercising. Maybe it's money. Whatever, give it up for the care of the lonely, for the poor, the sojourner, the foreign student. The student who's coming into RUF and is like, what is this? I don't know what this is. Give an hour of study up to get coffee or lunch with someone who looks like they're having a rough day. Give up listening to music on your earbuds while you're walking to class to see someone who you know is having a rough semester and say, hey, how are you? How can I care for you this semester? Can I buy you lunch? That's holiness expressed in love in the very real mundane parts of being a college student in 2019. Look with me, at, let's look at a different case study. Look at me at verses 16 and 17. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. So what's slander? Well, slander is basically a false witness that ruins someone's reputation. You put it that way and you're like, holy crap, our world is full of that. Just think about social media. Think about what goes on in social media. All the gossip, all the digs, all the jabs behind the back. And, that, and, then, and then just blow it up even outside of social media. How many times am I talking, ugh, so-and-so needs prayer. They're doing X. Ooh. Even in our holy Christian world, we do it. But in then outside of it, I was just reading this post today is talking about how destructive how we use social media is with other people to the point that people kill themselves because of what happens on social media. We all have seen and heard stories about somebody getting slut-shamed or berated on social media, and they kill themselves over it. It ruins lives. It's a... Fundamentally, it's a failure to love those around us. And we can be different as Christians. We can be a people who are saying, we're not going to do that. We're going to love the... Yeah, somebody may have done something on Friday night and posted it, and that was not wise of them to post it. But rather than shaming them for it, I'm going to go and say, hey, um, tell me what you did on Friday night and tell me why you posted it. And maybe you should take it down because it's not your best. Rather than the whole world of crap that we put up with. Right? Look what it says here. Do not take vengeance. Where is it? You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. That means if you have a problem with someone, you go to them and say, hey, something's wrong in our relationship. Can we talk about it? And if it still doesn't go well, then you bring someone else and you say, hey, I need help with, with conflict with this person. We're just not connecting. Would you help me? Rather than the alternative, which is just shaming them, which is berating them, which is cutting off the relationship and holding a grudge because, oh, it feels so good. That's a failure to love, y'all. That's a failure to love. Grudges destroy communities. They're poison. They pull community apart. And sadly, we're not much different sometimes. And yet we're called to be holy. We're called to this radical love which transforms our community. And what happens when our community begins to be transformed? People look in on it and say, wow, those Christians are different like they did 2,000 years ago with the early Christians. Why are they different? Something's different about them. I want in on that. 
This command, this command to holiness, y'all, it's about sacrifice. Fundamentally, it is about sacrifice. Love others as you love yourself is a command to all-encompassing panoramic self-sacrifice. It's a command to die to what you want for someone else. That Christian holiness is not a pious removal from life. Christian holiness is about getting in the trenches with the person right next to you, even in the chair, that you don't look like, that you don't study with, that you don't listen to the same music as, that you don't stream the same shows as. It's getting in, into their life and saying, I don't know you, but I care for you and I want to love you. It's a, comp- it's a call to complete lo- self-loss for their good. It transcends normal human decency. This goes beyond holding a door for someone. This gets into, I want to care for you well. Can I apply this a little deeper? For the introverts in the room, I'm a huge introvert. I'm a professional introvert, but I'm actually a big introvert. Some of you disengage from friends, from people, and that's a failure to love. That is a failure to love. You are withholding You are selfishly withholding part of yourself, and that's a failure to love them well. Some of that even happens in RUF, where it's just like, I don't want to engage, I'm just going to leave. That's a failure to love. Extroverts, when you flit around from friend to friend, I'm just going to talk to this person, now I'm going to talk to this person, now I'm going to talk to this person. Either because I feel good with them, or they're cool, and so that, you know, they'll be great. Or just because I don't want to be deep with them. That's a failure to love. This kind of sacrifice, this kind of sacrificial love, it's hard. And humans were disinclined to it. We don't like, we are inclined towards selfishness. This has become really, really poignant for me. Get ready for the baby illustrations, y'all. They're just going to start pumping out. (laughs) So here's the first one. I've been realizing this. So so the baby wakes up... um, she wakes up at night and she needs to be fed. And so Caroline will take shifts. And so Caroline, my wife, will feed her one time. Um, she'll feed her, uh, you know, with a bottle, obviously, because... I mean, she, I feed her with a bottle. Caroline doesn't because of anatomy. And so, so um, every time around 2 a.m., she starts fussing. And when I hear it, every night, my first sleep-induced reaction is, I don't want to feed her, so maybe I won't. Like, that's the first thing I think of when, I, when she starts fussing. It's like, I don't want to oh, do it. Maybe I won't. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so interesting because my, nose, most, my first most natural thought is to deny my own daughter, this helpless person who depends on me for her survival, to deny her the food that she needs because I'm more interested in getting my own sleep. Like, that's my first reaction, is to be like, I don't want to do it. I want to sleep. Like, she's helpless. If we don't feed her, she dies. That's how, that's like, that's, that's how selfish we are, that there's this constant inward bend in our hearts towards what I want, not towards the sacrifice of others. And let's name this for what it is. It's sin. It's unholiness. It's disobedience. It's selfishness. And if you say that you don't do it, you're either not looking deeply at yourself or you're lying. So how do we fix this inward, selfish, anti-sacrificial, anti-loving bend in our hearts that just collapses in on us? Well, The solution, I think, 
is found in the refrain that we read several times in our passage. Look at it again. You probably noticed it as I read the text. Did you see a phrase that was repeated over and over again in the text? Over and over again. What did it say? I am the Lord. I am the Lord. In fact, that passage, I am, or that phrase, I am the Lord, appears 16 times in Leviticus 19. Over and over and over again, he says, I am the Lord. Obey me in this area. I am the Lord. Obey me in that area. I am the Lord. Now, why, how, does that, how does that help us in selfishness? Well, hang with me. Listen to this. Listen to chapter 18. If you have a Bible, look with me at chapter 18. Chapter 18 here says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If any person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So over and over again, he says three times even in that, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Now, what's happening in those verses right there where he's saying that? Well, he's saying, he's saying, remember what happened to you in Egypt. He says, you shall not do as you did in the land of Egypt. Remember, you're not in Egypt. You shall not do as you, you shall not do in the land of Canaan where I'm taking you. So what is he saying? He's saying here, he's saying that I saved you from Egypt. I, the Lord, saved you from Egypt. I saved you from physical, oppressive, brutal slavery. I am the Lord. I am bringing you into a land of Canaan where you are going to flourish. I am the Lord. So over and over again, when he says, I am the Lord, that is a cue to remind them of how much he loves them and of who they are, his treasured possession, and of what he is doing for them, his plan for them. Tells them, this is what I've done for you. This is how much I love you. This is how what great plan I have for you. I am the Lord. So this refrain, I am the Lord, it actually is a shorthand reminder of the whole series of events that Israel has seen of God's incredible love for them. I am the Lord. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. I am the Lord who destroyed your oppressors. I am the Lord who got you across the Red Sea. I am the Lord who gave you manna and bread from out of the sky. I am the Lord who is bringing you into a rich land of flourishing. I am the Lord your God. Now, because I am the Lord, obey my rules. So then when they read, I am the Lord, over and over and over again, it's supposed to cue, oh yes, God loves us. God sacrifices for us. God has a plan for us. God cares for us. Now, if that was true of Israel, who were saved from physical slavery, How much more is it true for us who have been saved when we trust in Jesus from our spiritual slavery and our spiritual damnation? How much more true is it when we read, I am the Lord? Do we see God saying, look how I saved you? How much more true is it when he says, look what your identity is. You are sons and daughters of God through faith. How much more true is it when he says, I have a great plan for you, heaven itself. Obey my law. 
Obey my command to holiness and love. I am the Lord. Listen to what Paul says here. Paul's commenting something like this. He says, But thanks be to God that you who were once enslaved to sin have become obedient from the heart to His commandments have been set free from sin. We, friends, we have a greater salvation than Israel ever did from sin. We have a greater identity. Sons and daughters of the living God. We have a greater future. Heaven. That means we have all the better incentive and power and hope to punch out of our own self-inward bend and actually start holily loving each other. Do you see how it works like that? As we meditate, as we dwell on as a community what God has done for us and His love for us, I am the Lord, we can actually start loving one another in holiness in self-sacrifice. As we meditate on God's sacrifice in Jesus, we can start to sacrifice for one another. So what is this passage about? It's about holiness. What is holiness? Holiness is mundane love for the people around you, for your neighbor, for your classmate, for your roommate, the person sitting next to you tonight. How do we get the power to do that? How do we get the power to move beyond our own selfishness by studying and reflecting and dwelling on Jesus' incredible sacrificial love for us. And as we do that, the grace of the cross, it begins to change us to where we can actually start holily loving one another. Y'all, God loves us with an incredible sacrificial love. The cross proves that. And he calls us out of that love to start loving one another in holiness. What is holiness? It's love for one another. So y'all love one another. Love one another in this room, in this campus, the people who you run into. Give up the inward bent that you have and start to love one of them. Not out of guilt, but because of what God has done for you. Sacrificially, patiently, generously, always looking to God's love for us. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thanks for this text. Lord, it challenges us. It challenges me. It pushes me. It pushes all of us. It peels back the places where we are selfish. Um, But it doesn't leave us there, Lord. Your Spirit always shows us hope for the future. So Lord, we pray that we as a community, RUF would be a community that reflects well on the Gospel and then starts to apply it to our own lives, to our own community. Help us, Lord, to be holy, to love one another. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.